I'm Anya Murray. And I'm Brian McGlynn. And this is Root and Branch. Each episode in this series is about a particular native tree, and we look at the ecology, the folklore, the music, and the traditional crafts associated with that tree. I've also written songs for each episode, reflecting the things we've discovered about each tree. This week, we're all about ash trees. Ash trees are everywhere in Ireland, especially in our hedges. Because many of Ireland's bats roost, forage and travel along ash-lined hedgerows, Brian and I travelled to County Cavan to meet with Dr Tina Ochney, a bat expert, who showed us how to use a bat detector. These brilliant little machines translate the ultrasonic sounds that bats make into audio waves that our human ears can hear. We managed to tune in to these amazing little creatures chasing midges and moths through the canopies of ash trees and have lots of these recordings in this episode. So it's just above the ash tree. Here it is. After hearing these percussive, multi-tonal bat sounds, I showed them to jazz percussionist Matthew Jacobson. And recordings of this recreative collaboration are featured throughout this episode. Ash is well known in Ireland as the timber used for hurley making, but it has also been used for centuries in the making of furniture. We'll visit woodworker Fergus de Bruyne in County Cork, walking through the woods with him to find out about what a sustainable source of ash means to him. trees began to take hold across Ireland around 9,000 years ago, possibly about the same time as the first humans settled here. Now ash is one of the most commonly occurring native trees in Ireland. Ash leaves are made up of lots of smaller leaflets, a structure that allows plenty of light to penetrate through the canopy. This means that ash trees don't take all the light for themselves. Enough gets through to keep understory trees like hawthorn, hazel and holly, quite happy living beneath the cover of taller ash trees. This is one of the reasons why ash is such a great hedgerow tree, because it doesn't cast too heavy a shade on the hawthorns and the other shrubs that make up the hedge beneath. Ash is by far the most common tree in Irish hedgerows. It grows in about 80% of hedges here. And whether in a hedge or a native woodland, These mighty trees provide the structure for rich webs of life. Spring flowers grow beneath their shelter. Caterpillars and a plethora of other insects live in their leafy canopy. And dozens of different species of birds nest in and feed around the many layers of a big ash tree. For me, a stand of healthy ash trees is a real treat to see and spend some time in. The sandy-coloured, crisscrossing split bark, the black buds when the branches are bare, and the bright green fronds of leaves in summer, 
is just a wonderful sight. It's rare in folk songs to find descriptions of a scene like that, but this next song is just that. This is an old Welsh folk song that I found and sing now called The Ash Grove. The fair woodland bowers are peopled with flowers The trees long forsaken with green buds abound But trust not the weather, though all bloom together When the ash trees awaken Summers come round How sweet was the pleasure In long days of leisure When life lay before us In green woods to roam Mild breezes were blowing Glad streamlets were flowing and the birds sang in chorus throughout the ash grove. Tears since together we hailed the warm weather when the ash trees in Maytime awakened to life. Comrades light-hearted Long since have departed Instead of youth's playtime Their sorrow and strife Yet when woodland bowers Are filled with fresh flowers Neath trees of green splendor It's comfort to of gladness are mingled with sadness and with memories most tender I seek the ash Brian and I travelled to County Cavan one evening to take a walk along a country laneway at dusk. Alongside the lane runs a hedgerow filled with ash trees, except rather than looking at the ash trees, we had bat detectors with us and we were listening out for some very strange sounds. We were lucky enough to be there in the company of bat expert Dr Tina Ochni. There's an ash tree. Yeah. Uh, my name is Tina Ockney and I'm a bat ecologist. Ash are absolutely wonderful for, for bats because of the whole insect, native insect resource that's going to be associated with our native trees, but also ash trees have wonderful features that can provide roosting sites for bats, such as tree holes or split limbs. So as they age, the, the, the tree will start providing good roosting resources. Bats don't create nests, they don't, they don't nest. Literally what bats are looking for is a dry, safe, secure space to lodge in. 
So if you just think of our lovely mature trees in the landscape, as they get older, there'll be possibly some damage from lighting or just damage from other trees crashing into it and limbs get damaged or there'll be fungal growth and that will make soft sections in the timber and that will rot in and produce these lovely tree holes. And bats just, that's traditionally what bats prefer to roost in. Bats are tree dwelling mammals. The more trees we have in our hedgerows and our landscape, the more opportunities there is for bats to roost in. So any big old tree that's going to have gnarly oh, bits wonderful. and broken yes. off limbs and rotted out bits. Oh yes, what, what people think they should clean up. No, 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 they're wonderful for the bats. Often you will, you will see, uh, if you're watching bats commuting, they literally emerge from the roost and are straight into the nearest hedgerow, straight into the nearest ash tree for cover and to protect them from predation. And then they commute along those. And as it gets darker, they are literally using them as, as commuting routes to get to where they want to feed. Bats are the only mammal that can actually fly, an evolutionary trait that allows them to catch flying insects as they weave their way through treetops by night. There's a big roost over that direction. So we'll get soprano pipistrels coming down the laneway that we've just come down ourselves. They'll follow the line of the ash trees okay. to get to actually this area to actually feed. What makes good bat habitat then? So your hedgerow with nice mix of tall trees such as the ashes along it, that is the primary feature that they need because um, bats will quite happily forage along these linear features even if their preferred place to hunt is maybe a river or a local lake or something like that. But they'll, they'll quite happily munch along the actual hedgerows to get to the main habitats. Goodness. And tell me about the insect life in an ash tree then that draws the bats in. Well, is it, well I suppose it's like all native trees, they're going to have a, a larger uh, volume of both insects and biodiversity of insects associated with them. But also trees and hedgerows provide that shelter point where the insects will gather. And as a consequence, the bats will just happily feed in the shelter of the hedgerow and the ash tree. They have quite good eyesight. It's just not perfect for flying in the dark hours of the night. So they have evolved to use echolocation. And echolocation is literally just producing high-pitched sounds. These sounds, like all sounds, go out in waves, hits off an object. The returning echo, the bat can actually create a sound image of their environment. Once a bat is flying, it's continuously echolocating and it's continuously receiving these echoes and continuously navigating and orientating themselves and as a consequence, hunting for the insects. So each bat species has a particular range of echolocation calls and these echolocation calls are designed to actually detect a certain size of prey or a certain size of insect. Wow, so and based on, on the call that they put out, they'll know if it's a tiny midge or a big moth. Exactly, so it's, it's like literally physics. Bats are really good at physics. But like the Lyser's bat will produce a call around 25 kilohertz. As a consequence, that's going to detect a particular size of insect. The other bats will produce a different call at a different range of frequencies and that will detect other size insects. But it's also whether the insect is soft-bodied or hard-bodied. If the insect is flying, what direction, how to intercept it, what speed. There's a lot going on here, so really beyond my level of physics interpretation, to be honest. These guys are the champions of navigating the areas of darkness. It's starting to get nice and dusky, so I'm going to put my bat detector on. Just a handheld device, 
microphones in the front, speaker, because literally bats echocate the frequency that we can't hear. So what the bat detector does is picks up the call and converts it down to a noise that we can hear. These nifty little machines pick up on sound frequencies that we humans cannot hear. They can transform the evening soundscape into a wondrous realm of rapid beeps and buzzes, making audible the sounds of bats hunting and chasing down midges and moths all around. Once we turn on the bat detector, it also picks up on sounds we make. Like when we make an S sound, it comes through the bat detector. Right there. Yeah. 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 Gone down to the bog. So that's a soprano. That's a soprano, but you see how it's following? Yep, it's following yep. exactly along the line of trees. Yep. So it's just above the ash tree. Yep. Here it is. Wow. And that was a common pipistrelle. Okay. So we've got two species so far. So as the bat is um, homing in on the insect, the calls are changed to a lower frequency and come more rapid, so it can actually zip in to actually catch the insect. Wow. So while it's normally echoed, it's pop, 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 but then when it's like, okay, there's an insect, pop, 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 see, it just zips in. <laughs> You hear that raspberry sound? Yeah. That's the feeding buzz. Yeah. It's gone. It's only with, with the bat detector that we are able to eavesdrop on the world of bats. <laughs> All along one little stretch of an average country lane lined with ash trees. What you're hearing is jazz percussionist Matthew Jacobson interpreting and collaborating with recordings of a bat. As I listened to the clicks and pops from the bat detector, I couldn't help but imagine what the bat's world must look like as they flitted between ash trees above our heads. I wondered if these ash trees themselves might also have a sense of the world around them, one we can't see or hear. Scientists are only beginning to figure out how mycorrhizal networks between the roots of trees are carrying signals from one tree to another. So perhaps imagining that world isn't so far-fetched. In Ireland, ash has a powerful place in our imaginations. The ancient game of hurling is inseparable from ash. Every child in Ireland who hears the story of Cúchulainn, driving a schlitter into the mouth of the attacking hound, grows up imagining themselves doing the same as they puck a ball against their gable wall 
with an ash hurley swinging in their hands. In mythology, ash is also associated with Queen Maeve and is sometimes referred to as the Queen of the Wood. The flexible springy timber has long been used in the making of carts and carriages, as well as the handles of whips. A white ash barrel called a firkin was said to be the best kind of barrel for milk. The timing of the bud burst used to be taken as a sign of how much rain there would be in the summer ahead. Ash before oak were in for a soak, or oak before ash were in for a splash. So I've written this song for the ash as a way to imagine the world of this tree in the first person and all the supporting roles it has played in our lives. It's called The Ash, the Queen of the Wood. As I travel the road Drive the whip on the horse's back The rushes and ash, the spring and the crack Watch the buds for a soak or a splash The pride of the forest, the oak and the ash the mark stick the barrel and whip on the car I drove the ball that buried the hound cut from the root four feet from the ground I marked the spot where Maeve once stood For I am the ash, the queen of the wood I am the ash, checkered and torn Blackwoods wait for leaves to be born a hollow fur bat's torn out in the storm I am the fire that keeps you warm
Ash was considered noble according to the Brehan laws because of its strong yet flexible wood. And this springy grain is what has made ash so perfect for making carriages, furniture, tool handles and hurleys. Anya and I travelled to North Cork to meet with former county hurler and hurley maker Fergus de Bruin, now a furniture maker. For Fergus, combining his love for hurling with his interest in woodwork was an obvious step, but his history didn't unfold as we might have expected. Oh. Wow, these are two They're hurleys two. you've made yourself. Yes, yeah. You're catching it at the top of the hurley and then bending it over, as you would see a lot of people checking the flex in a hurley. So you're you're bending it against the ground there to see what the spring is like in the hurley? Is yeah, right? yeah. So not not exactly how, how far I can bend the hurley, but how much resistance that the centre of the hurley, the handle section, how much resistance that is kicking back at me. And ultimately, I think a reason for doing that is because when you strike the ball, that's the exact same force that's inside in this stick that's driving a slitter. That's driven really by the quality of the ash, right? It's got that springy, straight grain that's, yes. a, that's able to, to act in that way and, and release energy so quickly like yeah. that into a ball. It's a huge characteristic of, of the material, yeah. But if you go back not even so long ago, like the carriage builders will tell you exactly of the attributes of a piece of ash and how the, that flexibility can be used. Do you mean people who had like horse carriages like built out of ash almost like suspension on the road you mean it's exactly yeah yeah so the main shafts that would be coming from that carriage offered a flexibility or a dampening of vibrations for the carriage in itself when it was running over ground fergus told me that in ireland ash suppliers import the timber so that woodworkers like him can buy ash planks straight off the shelf ready for making hurleys while this worked for a while it was expensive and the supply was limited. So eventually, he decided to cut out the middleman and start sourcing the timber himself. So that became a reality for me where I was sourced in the UK. They have different woodlands that are cordoned off for sale and you buy it as a standing woodland. The last time I went over left the biggest mark on me. I was sourcing between 220 and 230 trees. And these were all in a square plot in a, in a fabulous woodland. Like, I mean, this woodland was teeming with wildflower. It was teeming with birds. And the trees were fantastic. They were specimen ash trees and they were ideal for hurley making. So I ended up buying that area and I had to fell it all myself. I remember having that felled and looking back, I just had my heart just absolutely sunk. The, 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 the trees that I had felled, I had felled them up on top of each other. And as they were laying down, I never forget, I remember some of them like crushing a lot. There was a wildflower bed, I, I think it was bluebells at the time, and it had the whole thing crushed and all the flowers there and the life was wilting. I, I suppose years after it made me stop and say, this, this is totally unsustainable. Like I am a small hurley maker. I think the real key about that was I had a real tangible experience of the frontline effect of what I was actually doing. And it was just at that time, I didn't really know what to do, but I, I, I did have a sense of I don't really want to be a part of this or I, and I don't want to contribute to it. How much of the tree do you actually use to make a hurley and what part of the tree is used? If you're looking for timber for hurleys, you need to be cognizant of that before you cut the tree. You can't cut a tree down for furniture 
and then decide after I want to make hurleys out of it. And the key reason for that is that the root is the optimum part here for hurley making. You're roughly talking about three to four feet from the ground up. You'd have 1.2 meters to the top of the hurley, let's say, and, and a bit more. And the rest of the tree is, is discarded as ultimately firewood at that stage. The waste that was produced sort of led me into making other things around this. And ultimately that led me on to going into furniture making and joinery. Fergus was not willing to continue sourcing timber from clear fell plots that were so destructive. And his experience was to have a huge impact on him. Over time, he has found a more restorative approach to woodwork. And to illustrate this, he took us to visit the woods where he now sources timber for his furniture making business. So we're here now in this beautiful ash and mixed woodland. It's all really nice deciduous forest, just alongside a busy road. So I made contact with this landowner maybe five, six years ago now, and the two of us have the exact same uh, wishes and ideas for how this should continue and maintain itself. So as a landowner, his sole purpose here is to restore the woodland. It is true we are extracting, we are extracting from different areas, but there is no clear filling. There is no overall destructive practices going on here. The, the, the principle that we're working off at the moment is we work at one tree within seven years and the height of that tree is the radius of the circle which you can't come in. So what I mean by that is if, if I take a 30 foot sapling, well then we can't uh, touch anything in the area of 20, 30, 40, 50 feet, or not can't, just won't. So yeah, it's very much uh, a restorative way of, of extracting. Fergus now works with a greenwood furniture discipline, using fresh, undried timber sourced from windfall or occasional harvests, and using traditional hand tools to make bespoke furniture. Now we're, we're standing in your workshop. We're surrounded by hand tools. There's ash that you've shown us. It's much slower, right? Making chairs and tables by hand. Is it something that you can make a sustainable living at then as well? Well, I mean, what's sustainable in living? So if I was to go back to producing a lot of money from making hurleys, I mean, what's sustainable about that if I'm going to end up in 20 or 30, 25 years time with not having any stick to make any hurley out of, even though I'm after making loads of money in the interim. So this is a response to my love of working with a material that I have so much admiration for. Because at the end of the day, I'm making things here for sure, but the bigger story is that our woodlands are in serious trouble. And I ultimately don't want any child of mine to be living in a world without our native woodlands. There is a fungal disease that's lethal to ash trees called ash dieback. The disease has travelled from Asia across Europe, reaching Ireland in 2012. Over the past decade, it has spread to every county here. It's easy to see as the tops of infected ash trees appear to be dying back, 
right in the middle of the growing season. The ends of the branches in infected trees have leaves that are visibly withered and blackening. Over the course of several years, trees with ash dieback disease will die. It's estimated that only one or two out of every 10 ash trees will survive. This means that over the course of the next decade or so, we will see the almost total annihilation of Ireland's ash trees. The impacts of such a severe loss are far-reaching for landscape, for climate, for water quality and for wildlife. To face up to what's coming, we need to think long-term. Ash trees have a far longer lifespan than us. They can live for over 300 years. For an ash tree, just three or four generations of ash can span a whole millennium. Those of us with a Western mindset aren't much good at thinking on timescales of hundreds of years. But we need to get better at thinking on these timescales. There's much we can do now for the future. Like protecting the specimens of ash that show resistance to the disease. Like recruiting other native trees to take the place of ash that will be lost, rather than letting sycamore or beech take their place, both of which cast a very heavy shade. And if we leave dead ash trees standing wherever possible, they will provide roosting sites for bats and birds. This is thinking ahead on the timescale of trees such as ash. And sometimes, when we take action in facing a particular threat, a change in perception occurs that can transform the way we see the world. In dealing with ash dieback, we must take immediate action as well as a long-term view. This is an approach we very much need today. Perhaps facing the calamity of ash dieback disease will prompt us all to approach the future with a greater sense of diversity, flexibility and resilience. Facing such an ecological disaster takes empathy, imagination and adaptability. Ash trees have been on this island for 9,000 years and Ireland wouldn't be the same place without them. As hurleys, chairs, carts and homes to all the other species that live among them, they've played a huge role in shaping our country. For the sake of generations to come, it's vital now that we pay attention to these trees, to what replaces them and to their future on our land.